Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of reason. Lord, we you do not ask us to check our brains at the door in order to embrace you. Lord, you created this universe with certain laws and certain ways of viewing it. And I thank you, God, that some of those we understand, some of them we don't. I pray, God, uh, we would have a spirit of humility, would say we understand some but not all. And that we would not go where we can't go and we would not make claims that we can't back up. Lord, for those in this room here that uh, believe faith and reason are two separate disciplines, I pray, God, that this series would help them to understand that you are reasonable, God, and that uh, you have created us with this inquisitiveness for the universe that is part and parcel to who you are. Pray, God, you'd be with us. Pray, Holy Spirit, you'd speak to our hearts and to our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. We are starting a brand new series off today at Uptown Community Church, and it's called EBF, and I made that up, but I like it. Um, It's called Evidence-Based Faith. The whole idea behind the series is, is we need to kind of re-examine some statements that we have in our culture, in our society, about what does it mean to be a Christ follower, and is that a reasonable uh, way of looking at it? Is that that something that we can uh, engage with, with our brains? Um, One of the things I've been been, uh, working on this... uh, series for a few months now. And what's interesting to me is that when I'm teaching on something or when I'm studying something, I see a lot of, uh, of different uh, things in the newspapers about it. came across this article in the New York Times, uh, December 29, 2016. And it was so interesting to me about how this article really captured exactly what I was talking about. The article is about a, a person, my name is, uh, his name is Bart Campolo. And uh, his name should probably sound familiar to you. He's the son of famous evangelist Tony Campolo. And Bart Campolo had a, uh, a moment, uh, a life or death moment. And in a life or death moment, the way of thinking is that you come to a point of saying, oh, maybe there's something more to this world. Well, Bart actually had the exact opposite reaction. He had this life and death moment, and he realized there is no God, according to his, his way of looking at it. So him and his wife made this statement of saying, I don't, I don't actually believe in a higher power, this idea of God. And so Bart actually used uh, his skills as a preacher, because he was for a couple of decades a preacher, and became what, what he would say an atheist preacher. And he went out going uh, around saying to people about how there is no God and how, how this, that, that idea of, uh, of no, no God being an actual reasonable request. And he would say to himself, uh, one of the quotes that kind of jumped out at me, he said, he began telling friends that he was a post-Christian. And that's interesting. And I think that's actually kind of, uh, I think it's very uh, indicative of what's going on in our culture today, that we are living in in what I would say a post-Christian country. Now, let me say something for you real quick here. Uh, Canada is not a Christian country. The United States isn't a Christian country. England isn't a Christian country. I don't know what you want to do. There's no such thing as Christian countries. Countries are not Christian, okay? Because uh, countries are democracies, or at least they should be. And a democracy, whether which way ever you look at it, is not maybe the best way of governing. It's our way of governing. I would, I would argue uh, quite convincingly um, that, with a little bit of humor, that I think democracy is the best way. But when you, when you have a democratic nation, you have to govern everybody under that democratic nation. And so you can't elevate one religion above the other. And that's a struggle Christians have had and perhaps maybe struggle with even now today. And I know that I've mentioned this before, but our, our political situation is where religion gets brought into it in a way that I'm not sure it should be brought into it. Uh, I definitely think there's some values. I think there's definitely some ways of looking at it. But we have to be very careful to say this political party or this country or even this speaker speaks for me. Because what you're finding out more and more is that we have to say, what does the Bible say? How does God line these things up and, and how does it actually work out? So Barcamp Polo came out and said that, you know what? I'm no longer a Christian. I'm now post-Christian. And the New York Times article went through and talked about how there's a movement amongst uh, uh, younger, but it's still a movement nonetheless, about saying, hey, I am no longer a Christian. I am post-Christian. Came across another article in the Toronto Star in December 2016, uh, talked about this idea of uh, liberal theology. And towards the end of this series, we're going to kind of unpack what that means. This study that had been going on in Canada believe it or not, actually this is a a study that I've seen repeated in uh, different publications, talked about what does a healthy, what does a growing church look like? So you have probably heard that the church in Canada, North America, maybe around the world, is shrinking. And you'd be correct, but you would also be incorrect. There are certain churches that are shrinking, and, and there are certain churches that are not shrinking, and actually there are certain churches that are actually growing. And so what the study set up to say is like, okay, can we see an indicator of what makes a church grow? And what makes a church die? 
Now, remember, this is the Toronto Star. Um, throughout this series, let me just tell you this right now. Everything that I'm going to tell you, everything I'm going to unpack for you, I'm not going to take from a Christian background. I want to be clear about that. And if I do use something that is from a Christian background, I'm going to front and load it. I'm going to say this is a re- this, this person, this, this article is coming from this background. The reason I want you to know that is because I believe that Christianity, um, this idea of, uh, of a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, um, can, be, can be verified and can be validated apart from its own writings and teachings, right? So you have to be careful about that. So the Toronto Star, the study came out saying, you know, how do we know if a church is growing or whether it's dying? This is what the article said. As researcher, it's not often you make a discovery that flies in the face of conventional wisdom. But when, was, when we finished assessing our data, that's what happened. We found it is conservative theology with its emphasis on the factual truth of Scripture and God's activity in the world that fuels church growth. Liberal theology leads to decline. That was so interesting, right? Because what they really wanted to say is, so we have all these churches that some are growing, some are dying. What's the indicator, right? And Previous to this, if you were to ask a pastor, there are many conferences that pastors get invited to say, here's how you grow your church. And it's worship, it's advertising, it's Twitter, it's Facebook. I literally sat in this one uh, uh, conference for pastors. They're all talking about your personal brand. You got to work on your personal brand. Get a website, get a personal brand. And I'm sitting there going, I, don't, I, I probably shouldn't be in this class right now because I think you're all a bunch of... Uh, uh, anyways, I, I just thought it was kind of a ridiculous thing to say for a pastor, right? Now... I realize that I may be, uh, I may be not the uh, common opinion, but I thought it was just interesting, right? So what this article did, what this research did, is that there is actually some ways of, of uh, a metric that we can use. It went on to say this. We found, without exception, the clergy and congregants of the growing mainline Protestant churches held more firmly traditional Christian beliefs, such as a belief Jesus rose physically from the grave and that God answers prayer. The clergy of the growing churches were the most theologically conservative and the declining church clergy the least. Uh, When we use statistical analysis to determine which factors are influencing growth, conservative Protestant theology was a significant uh, predicator. That's interesting to me. Because what you would hear is, and what you would hear uh, out there in the media, in articles, and blogs, and, and speakers, is that we have to be careful about how we talk about our theology, how, how we talk about our beliefs. And we should probably curb some of the sharper edges of religion so that we make it more open to other people. But this research would say to you, when you do that, the exact opposite happens. Is that when you curb the sharp edges, you actually just make it less attractional to people. And that's actually kind of interesting. So as we kind of navigate this series, you're going to see those two tensions. We're going to see the predominant uh, themes within our culture come up against the, uh, the actuality of statistical analysis of science and things like that. And so we are going to kind of um, uh, do that. So the reason I call this series Evidence-Based Faith is because pre... Uh, like, <laughs> Let me have a confessional moment here. I grew up in a church, uh, a church background that um, I was told in my church background to just believe. Just believe. I, I, I have a very inquisitive mind. As a matter of fact, I used to take apart, apart my, uh, the toys when I was a kid, right? Not because I, I, I didn't like them. I just wanted to know how they worked. I was never very good at putting them back together. Let me just be clear about that. I could take them apart, great. Putting them back together is like, okay, I can't remember where that goes. But, you know, you take the motors and you make some toys out of it, you know, whichever way. I had a very inquisitive mind. And I remember saying to people in my church, like, why this? Why not that? And um, people just say, believe. But I've learned um, when I ran into a group of uh, believers that there are reasons for belief. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we have this very famous verse that says, faith shows a reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Now, the word evidence it uses in the Greek is not just simply this, this, this word of like, oh, it's, it's obvious. The word evidence actually means to actually peer into it, ask some questions of it, right? Oliver Wendell Holmes said that truth is tough. You know, you can punch it, you can kick it, you can do whatever you want to it. It's still true. And that's really where it kind of came from. This series is actually really uh, important to me because in 1988, I made a decision um, to leave the church. Uh, I went to a high school in town here called Waterloo Collegiate Institute. It's not called that anymore. And uh, I took my, me and my hair, uh, which I'm, I'm bringing the mullet back just to be clear. I want you to know that. And for any of you above the age of 35, 40, you'll, you would have had that kind of hair. Stan, I know you had a haircut like that, so I know that to be true. The question I asked that made me leave the church was this. Why Christianity and not another religion? I grew up in church. 
And so I would ask people who I thought should know, people who are older than me, and at that time, because I was 16, it's everybody, why, why are you a Christian? Why not something else? So what happened was I actually left the church and I went out and I spoke with every other religion I could find. I spoke with imams, I, I, I spoke with Buddhists, I spoke with um, uh, like everybody. Anybody I could find that would have a different perspective and I would say the same question to them. Prove to me that you're right. Because I grew up in a, in a, in a tradition of this, this is the way I view the world and it can't be correct because one of, one of the things I recognized was this is what we say and this is what we do and there's a disconnect. And what we say and what we do, if those aren't the same, well, well there must be a lie in there somewhere. And so I went out into the world and into the world, you know, in kitchener Walu, I had to go to Toronto to find some people. Um, and I said, okay, Prove to me that you're true. Prove to me that you're right. And the funny thing was, and I sat down with these people, and here I am, like, just, you know, I had a, I had a pen and paper. We didn't know electronics back then. And just, like, just taking notes. And then what I used to do is I'd take those notes, and I would sneak in to the university libraries, and I would say, okay, this is what you've told me. Can I verify it? Can I find some proof? Because that's really what I really want to know. Is there proof to believe what I believe? And after that journey, and that journey was something of several months, uh, I realized something. They didn't know any more than I did. And what they said actually didn't stand up to scrutiny. And so I went back to my church, and I started asking different questions. And the good news was that I ran into a guy named Dave Dobson, who taught the uh, high school, uh, Sunday school class back in the day when we had Sunday school. Uh, and he introduced me to a guy named Francis Schaefer. He introduced me a book called How Should We Then Live? And it, it was my introduction to Francis Schaefer that led me to C.S. Lewis and to a whole bunch of great thinkers, Thomas Aquinas and, and others as well, too, that I began to read individuals who asked the same questions that I asked. And they actually had answers, though. For me, that was important. Because I don't, I'm not a person that says, uh, uh, just believe. I, I hate that answer. And I think that answer avoids a whole bunch of uncomfortable questions. And sometimes there are no answers to the questions, and that's okay. But just be honest about that. I don't know. I would actually respect that I don't know than the other question, the answer I usually got, which was just believe. Didn't like that one. So in 1988, I went out into the world, and I tried to say to myself, okay, how, how do I take a look at this? And I realized that, okay, maybe it's not Christianity that it may, may be incorrect. It might be Christians. Now, before we get on the holier-than-thou bandwagon, you have to remember something. In this room, there are people who believe something but act differently. And you, don't want, you know something? I'm the king of those people. You want to talk about hypocrisy? I'm the biggest hypocrite around. I've studied scripture. I've been a pastor. I've been a professional Christian for a long time. And I don't live up to what I think. I fall. I fail. I'm sinful. I know it. So as I say to you that the world, the, the church acted a different way than it said, that's me. So before you, if you're looking for the, the biggest hypocrite you know, you can right here. You, that's me. Because I know how I'm supposed to live, but I don't do. I don't do it. I don't always um, hit that level of, of, of excellence. And again, we're talking about Jesus here, perfection. I'm way further away from that than I care to admit. So... I had to figure out what is, it, what is the disconnect that I'm picking up here and how do I justify it? How do I understand it? And that's really kind of what we're going to be talking about throughout this series as well. So one of the things that we are seeing in our culture, there's a cultural shift that's happening and the cultural shift is talking about the none of the above. Now, you've heard about atheism and the growth of atheism and please hear me very clearly. I love atheists. I love those conversations because I like to hear different perspectives. I do. I love talking to people. That extrovert in me loves that part. But the inquisitive part of me is like, okay, how, how do you look at the world? How do you understand it? I, I, I like that conversation. I like to have that. But there's a different conversation that's been emerging lately um, that I think we have to address. Someone said to me out in the lobby there, you know, oh, is, is this an apologetic series? And I said, yes, but not really. So when I t uh, taught this series 20 years ago to my youth group, um, <laughs> It would have been a different way of looking at it. I would have, I would have approached it a little differently. Well, 
apologetics today has to be a little bit different because people are asking different questions. So this group of unknown above, let me kind of uh, introduce you to them. There's something called the American Religious Identification Survey. This survey has one of the longest-running surveys in America in regards to seeing how people identify themselves, self-identify. Right? And so in a survey, you will have at the very top, um, after your in, uh, information, the secondary part would be, how do you identify yourself? Christian, you know, uh, an other, right? The other, or there's other box now, none of the above. Well, what they found in 1940, 4% of Americans would identify themselves as none of the above. Right? In 1990, it was 8.1. In 2008, it was 15%. In 2012, it was 19.3%. Uh, in 2014, it was 25%. But now let me show you something about this, because there's something that's kind of interesting about this, okay? From 1940 to 1990, it took 50 years for that group that identifies this way to double. 50 years. But now watch this. Between 1990 and 2008, that's 18 years, it almost doubled again. And in 2008 to 2012, four years, it jumped almost like 5%. And then in 2012, 2014, it jumped almost 5%. To the point today, and again, this is American, of course, but I think Canada kind of falls in the same category in regards to religious self-identity. One out of four people identify themselves as none of the above. They would not self-identify as a particular group. Now, it does not mean that they're not Christian. It does not mean that they're any particular religious uh, affiliation. They would just say that I'm not comfortable putting a, a, a check mark in a box. And so this is actually the group that I'm actually going after in this series. And I say go after. I'm not going to chase you anywhere. I don't have time for that, right? Um, but I do mean that the questions I'll be answering in this series is more about the none of the aboves that it would be anything else. So if you've been in church for uh, a number of years and you've heard an apologetic series, this might be a little bit of a different one for you because the questions I'm hearing today are different than the questions I heard 20 years ago. And so we have to have a different way of approaching it. And the good news is there's a great way of approaching it, but we just have to kind of look at what, what's called the new apologetics. Uh, one person describes it as more experiential apologetics. And that's kind of where we're going to be going. So the things we'll be talking about through this series, we're going to be talking about the Bible, where it came from, but not just where it came from, it's application today. We're going to be talking about science and faith and seeing if we can uh, reconcile, but we're also going to be talking about this idea of hypocrisy. We're also going to be looking at this idea of violence. Does religion create violence? That's a huge question. People look about around the world today and, like, and they say these, they see these religious wars and you're like, see, this is the problem with religion, right? Uh, and so uh, most uh, atheists today would say religion is the number one reason for violence throughout the world. Is that an accurate statement? Is, is, is that actually true? And so this series is going to ask some different questions than I would have asked maybe 20 years ago because people are asking different questions. So a nun in the above would say the nuns are people who are unaffiliated with brand name religion. They are the new major force in faith, and they are more secular in outlook and more comfortable admitting it. So if you said to somebody today that, you know, oh, I'm a Christian, and they said, well, I'm, I'm vegan. Don't laugh. People say that. That's fine. I, I, I would give them a chicken wing. That wouldn't be a great idea, right? But, but the thing is, though, in our culture today, those two labels are exactly equal. There isn't a better or worse. Dietary, self-identity, whatever way you look at it, those labels are the same. And which is interesting because if someone said today, I'm a Christian, you say, well, I'm an atheist or I'm Muslim or I'm Buddhist or, um, you know, whatever, whatever religious structure you have. You would say, okay, we, we have this conversation. This is the answer. But now people will say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, I, I believe this. Oh, okay. And it's an equal statement. It's an equal uh, way of looking at uh, how you approach it. So we have to kind of say to ourselves, how do we have this question? How do we have this conversation in a different way? And I'll kind of show you something here about the none of the above. So when you talk about none of the above, and this is by a guy named uh, James Emery White, a, a writer that I really appreciate and really respect. He says this, they are not hostile atheists. So the Richard Dawkins, the Sam Harris's of the world, these are not the none of the above's. Okay? And that level of atheism, that angry atheism, uh, believe it or not, actually doesn't have a foothold as much as people think it does. So I'm actually going to be teaching this series for an angry atheist. If you're an angry atheist, let's have a conversation that's different. 
And I'd be like, let's hug it out. That might be where the conversation starts. Let's, let's have a hug. Let's just, you know, put you there. Um, you know, let's, let's have that conversation first. Because an angry atheist is not the person that I'm really kind of targeting with this series. It's more about than on the above. So this is what Richard uh, Emery writes. says, they're not atheists, but they're apatheists. Now, what he means by apatheists, it's a word that he's created called apathetic theists. Put them together. They're apathetic about their faith. Um, who are ambivalent about religion. White says many of them are not opposed to the idea of God in general, but are turned off by church full of lawyers, representative power, guns, politics, and money greed. Nuns are product of a secularized, privatized, and pluralized post-Christian world in which many think they've heard and rejected the gospel, but most, in fact, don't even have the basic theological furniture in place to make a decision about it. Infected with bad religion, they don't believe they are sinners, but mistakers. They don't look for solid arguments, but statements have a feel of truthiness and wickedality, truthiness approved by, of by popular majority opinion. We are living in a culture, and some of you have heard of fake news, or some of you have heard maybe post-truth. We live in a post-truth culture. That's true. You get the, get the kind of the contradiction there, right? It is true that we are in a time of fake news and, and post-truth, but what does that actually mean? And what's interesting is that none of the aboves have a different way of approaching it. Now, I could tell you that none of the aboves, if you are 30 and under, you are probably in this category. The younger you are, the closer you are. So none of the aboves are one in four. But if you break it down by demographic, by age group, it's, it's like 60% of 20 and under, I believe, like none, of, like none of the above. Like if you're in university or if you're in college, none of the above is probably you. And what it is, is a response to organized religion that has betrayed one thing but acted in another way. And that hypocrisy, that, that gap, is what they're recognizing. And I think there's actually a great deal of validity to that. I think sometimes when you're having a conversation with somebody, all you can start off by saying is, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm, so, I, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for how you've been hurt. I'm sorry for what you've been told. I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry. And just start off that conversation just by apologizing and, you know, uh, for that. Because... There are many things that are indefensible in Christianity. And we're going to talk about those things, actually. We're going to have those uncomfortable conversations because we have to be honest. There are things Christians have done and are doing that would not line up with Jesus. But the cool thing is, the interesting thing is, so I had this conversation with this guy uh, a few weeks back. And uh, it was interesting because uh, I knew that this person would have some very interesting uh, questions. But I, ha- I framed the conversation at the very beginning this way, and I said this to him. Before we jump into this conversation of faith and, and questions, here's what I want you to know. Whatever you say about Christians, we have to go back into the Bible to see. And whatever claims you make about Christianity or anything about that, we have to find some proof for it. And it was something different for him, but he's like, okay. Like, I, I just want to make sure we frame it. Because the interesting thing is, is Christians can act one way, but how did Jesus act? And that's our, that's our barometer. That's our, like, that's our true north in regards to behavior. And that's the part of this that we have not really perhaps talked about. James Emery White talks about this a little bit further, and he says that we are living in a different culture altogether. And he uses the comparison between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17. Now, bear with me for a second here because I need to unpack something here. In Acts chapter 2, for those of you who don't know about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the story of the church after Jesus. It's the post-Jesus church. Right? So the beginning of Acts chapter, uh, the book, book of Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven. And you're like, miraculous. Please, we'll talk about that too. Right? So Jesus ascends to heaven. So the, the book of Acts, it's a story of the church without Jesus. It's now the disciples going out trying to figure out how to integrate this Jewish culture into Gentile culture. That's kind of what the book of Acts is. And there's a tension between the two of them. In Acts chapter 2, right, we know about the Holy Spirit coming at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. And Peter stands up and gives the greatest sermon in the Bible, except the book, between, besides the book of Jonah. But that's, you have to go back and listen to that sermon itself, right? So Peter gets up and says, by the way, everyone, this Jesus that you've crucified, this is who we're talking about, right? And look what he says there. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. And look what he says there. As you yourselves know. So when Peter was standing there talking to this group of people, we know that they were in Jerusalem for Passover. They were God-fearing Jews from different countries. So they had a commonality of conversation, right? That's important, right? Because what Peter did then, we get to Acts chapter 17. It's a totally different story, right? In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, 
And he's speaking to Greeks. And look how Paul has this conversation. He says this. Uh, he says, hey, let me tell you about the unknown God. Right? This is, a, this is a culture of hundreds of gods. And Paul walking along sees his pedestal to the unknown God. The Greeks were so nervous about missing a deity, they just created this catch-all of to the unknown God. Just to make sure we haven't missed a God. Right? And so Paul then goes on and says, hey, let me tell you about the unknown God. And, and goes back to the creation story. What does Peter do? Peter goes back to the book of Joel to talk to them about Jesus. What does Paul do? He goes back to creation and goes from there. And look at their response. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing in some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. When Paul was talking to this culture, he had a different conversation altogether. And James Emery White, and I think he's exactly correct on this, because others have kind of reinforced it, we are no longer dealing with an Acts 2 culture where there's a commonality of conversation, but we are an Acts 17 culture. So James Emery White says that if we were to use a spectrum of 1 to 10, 1 being furthest away from Christianity, 10 being this embrace of Christianity, he says that if you look at that, he would say that Acts chapter 2 represents a culture of, of people that are, are different. So 1, oh, far away, 10 close to it, right? So Acts chapter 2, that culture actually lands at an 8. So when, when Peter gets up and says to them, by the way, this Jesus you crucified, remember he walked amongst us, and by the way, we have people who have seen this. We're not just telling you this. We have people, we have eyewitness accounts of his death, of his resurrection, of his life, all of that, right? You have this commonality of knowledge and understanding, and this person, right? So when Peter's talking to them, they're at an 8, so he's got to move them to a 10. Simple. It's not a huge leap, Right? James Emery White says that when, when Paul is talking in Acts chapter 17, he's talking to a three. This culture is further away from understanding who Jesus is, so his conversation, his way of engaging them is totally different. So they're a three. And so because they're a three, he has to have a different conversation with them. Now look at this. At the end of Acts chapter 17, this is what they say. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. They would always say to Paul, come back tomorrow, let's keep talking about this. So what Paul was trying to do is he was moving from a three to a four. And then from a four to a five. The process of understanding what Jesus was and this idea of God was is a much elongated process. See, the church has been this idea that you come to church, you'll hear a message or not, you'll hear something, and that'll, that'll stir within you and you'll make that decision that's great, but the none of the aboves, all you young people, it's not how you operate anymore. There has to be this constant conversation, this constant movement from the one to the ten. C.S. Lewis wrote an article, it's a very well, uh, not one of his more popular articles, but he talked about this idea of what Christianity would lo- look like in the future. And he said in the article that he wondered if we would have to move them from secularist to pagan before we could move them to Christian. Because in this diagram, James Emery White and other sociologists would say, Paul was talking to a three. He's talking to Athens who believe in gods. I'm having conversations with people who don't even believe in gods. He says, our culture is more like a one or two. If that depresses you enough as it is. So the conversation has to be different. And that's what this series is going to be, is it's going to change the conversation a little bit differently because we have to ask different questions. We have to answer different uh, questions. So here's here's what we want to kind of talk about this morning. How much faith do you need? You ever ask yourself that? How much faith do you need to believe in Jesus? It's an interesting question because the question says to us, if I had enough information, I would make the decision. I've had many conversations with people Well, I've presented an apologetics of Christianity, of the historicity of Christ, and all these things. At the end of it, they're like, meh, nah, I'm still not convinced. Sometimes we believe that Christianity is a cognitive assessment of saying, this is what I'm going to believe, and therefore I have enough information now. And I think that is true, but it's a little different. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how much faith do you need to believe? In your Bibles, if you go to turn to John chapter 20 or get your electronic device out or you don't have a Bible, don't even worry about it. It'll be on the screen. In John chapter 20, we meet somebody named Thomas. 
I like Thomas because I feel like Thomas and I could be friends, right? Because Thomas is a guy that he's after my heart because he asks the questions that I ask, right? Now, let me give you a little bit of context here, right? So by the time we get to John 20, now John is a fourth biography of Jesus. It's written by an apostle on an eyewitness account of Jesus, right? And John chapter 20 is the last chapter in the book of John. And at this point in time, Jesus has been crucified. And now this is the next day, like what happens the three days later. And because of that, John is now having this conversation. But throughout the book of John, this guy Thomas pops out. And I'll show you in a moment where those, those moments are. And the disciples have come back from the tomb. And they've said this incredible story to Thomas, who was, by the way, absent. Maybe he was picking up the pita bread. I don't, know, I don't know where he was, right? But he was absent from these times. And look what Thomas says. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into the side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas has gotten a bad rap in the Bible. But I look at that, that's me. That's exactly what I would say. I would be like, I need a little bit more proof than Jesus appearing in a taco in a Taco Bell and somewhere else there. Like, or, or this weeping. I, I need a little bit more than that. I, I need a little bit more. I, I need a bit more than your emotional appeal. I need a little bit more than that. So Thomas asks a question that I think is actually really important. He says, I have to see this, right? And look what he says. He doesn't even say, I have to see Jesus. Look what he says. I got to put my fingers in his wounds like, ew, gross. But what is he saying? I know what Jesus looked like on the cross. That's the Jesus I want to see. Because if Jesus appears to me and he doesn't have that, did he have a twin? Right? What other, what other reasons could we give to not believe? So he says, I want to see Jesus, yes. But I saw what they did to him on that cross. I saw how they brutalized his body. I know where there's going to be marks on his body. And that's the verification I need to believe in Jesus. Now, which I think is actually a really important question here. And again, like I said, Thomas is asking something that I think we can all ask. In verse 6 and 8... We have the first encounter. Now look at this here, right? Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, right? Mary has come back and said, Jesus' body is gone, right? Now, you can sit here and say, resurrection. Really? Is that what we're believing now? Again, as I'm going to say a lot of times today, we'll get to that. We'll get to the historical proof of Jesus' resurrection. Might surprise you a little bit. The disciples go to the tomb upon Mary's testimony and they say, his body's gone. And Mary is, remember, she's just, she's beside herself. She's like, I just, can I not have closure? Can I not just dress his body for his funeral? Can I not just do that? Do you have to hurt me so much? This man, the only man in my life who ever looked at me with value, with belief, with love, with forgiveness, that guy's now gone. And I want closure. That's all I want. Right? She comes back to the disciples and said, he's gone. Peter, of course, Peter. Right? He's up. Boom. He's, he's running. Right? It's Peter. It's John. It's a couple other disciples. And they are running to the tomb. Right? Now look at this. Now Simon Peter came along behind them, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as a cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, this is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. And look at this here. He saw and believed. He didn't say, I need to see the wounded Jesus. He didn't say, I need to stick my fingers in his wounds. Ooh. He didn't say that. What did he say? He saw the empty tomb, and what was that? That was enough. That was enough. Why? Because he is making the intuitive leap of taking Jesus' teaching, everything he said about himself, also the miraculous nature of Jesus, and he's putting it all together. And for him... All he needed to see was the empty tomb. And what does the Bible say? He believed. What what does this tell us? That even these disciples who walked with Jesus for three years had degrees of belief. 
And sometimes in the church today that we have to acknowledge there are people with degrees of belief. And I want you to know something, okay? You may have doubts about Christianity. I'm just going to confess something. Sometimes I do too. Sometimes I, I, I have questions. I don't know where the answers are. I, I, I don't have all knowledge. I don't. And Google can't help me sometimes, so I, I don't know what to do. And I could tweet this, but no, the trolls live there, so forget that, right? So it's like, how do I get these answers? And I have to be okay with living with some doubt, with some mystery to faith. And by the time we get to the end of the series, you're going to realize that faith and mystery is actually kind of together. Evangelicalism and empiricism of the, um, the postmodern culture, we have ejected mystery. And by ejecting mystery, we have not created space for a God. Right? We have this neat little box that God fits in, and that's how he operates. But I just want to let you know, you can have your doubts and still be a Christian. You can have your questions and still be a Christ follower. And I'm going to show you why in a second here. So let's, let's keep going with the story here. Right? So some disciples believed, right? Now, in, in the verse 19 and 20, one, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, oops, sorry, did I uh, go past there? Oops. I went past, uh, I get a little itchy with the, uh, with the uh, clicker here. Let me go back here and see if I got this now. Okay. On the, evening, uh, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said and he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So what's the Bible saying, right? This is the perfect magician's trick. How do you get in a locked room? Right? Jesus appears. Whatever his resurrection body is, it has the ability to become immaterial and material. And, you know, previous, de- previous generations were like, well, that's magic. And we're like, well, actually, it might be quantum resonance, but we don't have to talk about that right now, right? So it's like, we're okay with that. We, we're, we can accept that. We can accept that there's space between molecules and atoms, and we'll get that as well, too, right? So this idea is that he appears there in a locked room, and he, and, and he, and he appears amongst them. And look what he says, right? He says to them, he, he, he appears to them, and he says, peace be with you, right? And to the Hebrews, he's saying, shalom. It's a greeting that the, that the, the, the Jewish people give to him. Shalom, peace be with you, right? This is a common greeting. Now, before we get too hard on, 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 uh, on Thomas, let me show you a couple of times that Thomas pops up in the book of John and kind of gives us a little indication of his character. In John chapter 11, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to him. And look what Thomas says. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we, that we may die with him. Jesus is talking about his death. He's talking about going to Jerusalem, being handed over to the leaders. And what does Thomas say? Let's go. Giddy up. Let's go die with him. He's not a coward. And he believes enough about Jesus to say, I don't know what this guy is, but I'm going to follow him to, his de- to my death. So we have to realize that Thomas did believe, just not enough. That he actually loved Jesus and was a follower of Jesus for a reason. But again, his doubts were still there. In John chapter 14, Thomas asks a question, right? John chapter 14, this is getting towards the end of Jesus' life. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, right? So we know that Thomas was engaged with Jesus. He wasn't just on, he, he just wasn't on the outside going, uh-uh, I don't think so. I, I could do that. Sure, that, that, I could do that. Yeah, absolutely, right? He wasn't that guy. He was actively engaged in his faith, yet he had doubts. And I find that so remarkable, and I find that so comforting, that in Jesus' followers, a guy like Thomas could find his place. Because a guy like me, who is skeptical by nature, can find his place in the church today as well. And that I don't have to have all truth, all answers, that that doubt within me can still exist, but I can, that doesn't, it doesn't stop me from having a relationship with God. Now look at Jesus' conversation with Thomas. Um, he says this. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What did Thomas need? What if Jesus just appeared to Thomas and said, Thomas, don't touch me, that's gross. But here I am. Do you believe now? 
Why did Jesus respond this way to Thomas? What was Thomas' question? I got to see the wounds. I got to make sure that this is not an imposter. I got to make sure that Jesus' family didn't have a twin. I got to make sure that this is the Messiah, that this is the person that I was willing to travel back to Jerusalem to die. I got to make sure it's this one, the authentic Jesus. And Jesus could have rebuked him. He did that to his disciples. He could have got angry. He could have said, really, Thomas? I've appeared a few times. I know where you are, right? And now you want to you you see the wounds? But instead, Jesus says, look, well, here, Thomas, what do you need to believe? Here it is. And then, but look, he just says there, stop doubting and believe. So let's answer this question. How much faith do you need? I was told that I needed 100% faith, and I never had it. I still don't. I was told that I had to have 100% faith to believe in Jesus, that I would just believe that if I could just make this ascent with my mind, with my heart, that that would overcome my doubts, overcome my questions. And I was told that if I could just have 100% belief, and we operate that way in the church today, don't we? 100% belief, you've got to believe, you've got to believe. I would say to you that you only need 51%. I know, it's kind of arbitrary. Some of you are chuckling. You knew exactly where I was going. I like the idea of 51%, because what does 51% say to me? It's the tipping point of doubt to belief. That you may have 49% doubt, but you have 51% belief. There is a tipping point of that, of that point. Because whenever you became a Christ follower, and I'm making that assumption, but some of you may not have, I don't think you had all the answers. I get so many emails from people who read a headline on Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or this tweet or that article. It's like, oh, they say this now. And what they're saying is, me, I don't have 100% belief. I still have doubts. And this article, this tweet, this person, this, this celebrity said this now, and what do I believe? What you're basically saying is I'm human. And because I serve a God that's invisible, let's be honest, right? George Collins said that, right? That we serve an invisible God, right? That is a God, our God Santa? No, right? So how do we do that? I would say to you that you need 51% belief. And the reason why is this. There are a lot of things in your life that you use that you don't have 100% faith for it. Every one of you have a phone in your pocket, a smartphone of some sort. Some of you may have a flip phone. I don't know why you're still doing that, but you get the idea, right? So you have a phone in your pocket. I guarantee you, if I asked you how this works, none of you could give me an answer. I know that you could give me the abstract. Well, it's an electronic device. I use a cellular. I'm like, no, you don't know. And you know how I know you don't know? If it breaks down, you don't know what to do. You put on a bag of rice and you hope that works, right? That's our solution for this thing, right? You don't have 100% belief in this, but you believe enough to use it. You panic when it doesn't work. You're disconnected for a few moments. Oh, no, the world's going to end, right? Like, we have that. Every one of you came in and you sat on the chair that you're sitting in right now. None of you checked it. None of you tested it. Like, okay, all right, it feels pretty okay, but there's movement here. None of you did that. You know Why? You just believed. You just sat down in the chair like, ah, it's a chair. It's chair-like. It's comfy. I'm going to sit down. You had enough faith in the chair, in your phone, to believe in its functionality. And I would say to you, that's kind of how we approach God as well, too. We have enough belief to understand its functionality that the doubts that we do have don't overcome the faith that we do have. I love what Emily Dickinson says. We We both believe and disbelieve 100 times an hour. Because there are times in your life where you are full of faith and belief. But there's other times in your life where you are lacking that. Right? Like we, we know Christianity, faith is kind of like an up and down. It's a roller coaster. And I, I just want to say to you, let's be honest about that. That in a low point in your time, when there is something physically, financially, relationally, when you come to that low point in your life, faith it's very low. And your belief in God and whatever you think God should be doing, it's very low. And we have to make sure that we leave space for people at that point to say, I don't know where God is. And we don't come alongside them saying, well, just believe. No, what we do is we come alongside them and with empathy saying, I don't know where God is in this as well. I, I just know that he is. And let's just stay together in this. That comfort, that, 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 that part of it. I love in Mark 9, 24, right? The father who comes to Jesus for a miracle. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. 
Help me overcome my unbelief. It's kind of my prayer every day. I do believe, Lord. Just help me overcome my unbelief. That's really what this series is going to be about. If some of you are at 43%, arbitrary, right? Some of you are at 37%. Some of you are at 55%. Some of you are at 65%. I'm hoping this series, the way I'm going to probably present it to you, I want to move the needle. And if you are in none of the above and you have not there, if you're at a three or a two, I'm hoping at this end of the series, if I'm really excited, it'll be at a five. Maybe if I'm lucky, you might get to seven. Right? But that's the idea, is I want to move the needle. I want to move the progress of faith. It's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. Atheism is faith. It's just faith in yourself. It's okay. I'm okay with that. I said to one atheist, I'm like, you don't believe in no God. You just believe that you are God. Of course, he looked at me like some of you are right now. And he said, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you say that religion is this. It's a value system, it's a way of living. I said, well, you're just making that for yourself. It's like, yeah, okay, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Just be honest about it. You're, you're, you're God. I'm not going to worship you. You've got bad acne. But still, I'm, you know, I, I, I get it, right? I didn't say that. I just think these things. I never say them, right? <laughs> My hope is with this series, and I just want you to know something. If you have somebody who's not a Christian, invite them. But don't be disappointed if they walk away going, well, I'm just trying to move the needle. I'm just trying to move people from a three to a four, and maybe from a four to a five, and maybe the conversation with you, wherever. People need different things to come to that point of faith in God. Now, let's go back to Thomas. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, There's two things that Thomas is saying at that moment right there. Thomas now has all the information that he needs to say two things about Jesus. One, that he's his Lord. That means that he's his master, that he's now servant to Jesus. He had what he needed. And then he says, and my God. Because now he realizes that Jesus, what he said about himself was true. My Lord and my God. Right? Now look what Jesus says. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me and believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's us. If some of you say to me, I just need to see Jesus, I don't know what to do to you. I don't know what to do about that. I do know this, though. This might get a little spooky, but people who ask things from God are always surprised when he shows up. One of the people we're going to be looking at through this series is a guy named Nabil Qureshi. Uh, some of you may know who Nabil Qureshi is. Nabil Qureshi was a Muslim. His, he was, his father is a Muslim missionary. He came to the point of his life where he said, like, I don't know if it's Islam or if it's Christianity. And so he prayed, show up. Guess what God did? He showed up. Is that how God's going to work with you? I don't know. I'm not going to confine God into a box. But I will say this. If you ask the right question, if you have the right spirit, don't be surprised when God does show up. Don't be amazed that the God that we talk about, the God I will be talking about, the God we sang about, the God we are constantly trying to tell you about, the God of the Bible, that God's not confined to this little theater, to my little teaching, to anything that we think of. He is greater than anything we can imagine. And if we ask the right questions with the right spirit, don't be surprised if he shows up. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we do this every week. Don't freak out. I'm not going to make you do anything yet. But I do want you to think. I realize we live in a culture that is very busy. I've just made a whole bunch of propositions this morning in regards to faith and belief. I talked a little bit about doubt, too. I confess to you my own doubt. I want to be honest about that. As your pastor, I want to be honest about that. I do have doubts too about things. I don't have all knowledge. Some of you here this morning, you have doubts. You have hurts. You have unanswered questions. And you don't know where to go with, what to do with that. Where to go with that. And those doubts, those hurts and whatever else it would be, it eats away, it gnaws away at, at 
what you feel God has for you. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do with it. To all you 51 percenters, you are most welcome here at Uptown Community Church. You are most welcome to engage with a God who, who's okay with our doubts, our fears, our hurts, our pasts, but looks beyond that. Wherever you are in that spectrum of one to ten, and again, it's arbitrary, I know, but please hear me very clearly. You are welcome here. You are welcome to ask questions. You are welcome to kick the tires of faith. I don't make any assumptions here. Some answers you get, some answers you won't. My prayer, my hope for all of you is that your doubts won't overcome, won't overcome your faith. Because I believe that there is a God who created everything. That mechanism of creation we can talk about and we will. That God loves you. It's a, he's, he's not an arbitrary energy force and he's not a quantum being. He is a relational being who wants to be in relationship with you. That God wants to speak to your doubts and to your disbelief, to your hurts, to your pain, to whatever else it would be. He's okay with your doubts. He's okay with all that. All I'm asking throughout the series is just to have the right spirit. In the update, uh, there's a little article in there. The guy that wrote it said this, "A, a true skeptic is not a person who attacks other people's faith. But a true skeptic is a person who asks questions about every aspect of their lives. And that's what I want. I want true skepticism. Lord, I thank you for each person here this morning. Lord, I don't know who they all are. I don't know their journeys. But in my spirit, I sense that some are some are hurt. They've been hurt by people in the church. They've been hurt by things said to them, done to them. And that hurt has created a vacuum of, of doubt in their spirits. And they come here this morning and they hide it well, but it's there. And they don't know what to do with it. I pray, God, that they would turn it to you and they would just confess honestly. This is what I don't know. Lord, I pray that each person in this room would know that the people in this room are not perfect. Nobody has all knowledge, all truth. But we are all journeying together towards whatever that truth is. And I believe that truth to be Jesus, the most, the, the greatest example of truth. Holy Spirit, I pray that this series would help to answer some questions. Would also give permission to people to ask the right questions and to be honest about where they're at. God, that you would act as only you can. Thank you. Thank you for loving us where we are, not where you wish we would be. Help us in the series, in Jesus' name. Amen.